0: Have you ever picked up one of the Where's Waldo books?
1: Yes, I have.
0: Well, those of you who haven't, it's uh, about the geeky guy with glasses in a red and white striped stocking cap who is placed in various crowded scenes, and the reader's job is to see if they can find him. Well, how about a game of real life, Where's Waldo? But instead of Waldo, we're going to be talking about Jimmy Hoffa. The disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa has inspired its fair share of jokes, parodies, TV documentaries, podcasts, movies, and books. And yet today, almost 46 years after he was spotted pacing back and forth in front of his car at a Detroit restaurant, no one knows where he is. A Florida swamp? Beneath Section 107 of Giant Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey? At the bottom of one of the Great Lakes? Underneath a house in a quiet Detroit neighborhood, in a New Jersey junkyard, under an above-ground swimming pool, underneath the General Motors headquarters in downtown Detroit, under a quiet barn in a hamlet north of Detroit, or in a steel drum in a Jersey City landfill, or is he somewhere else entirely? Or is he nowhere? Anyway, sit back and mix yourself a godfather and listen to the curious mystery. Where is Jimmy Hoffa? James Riddle Hoffa was born in Indiana in 1913. His father was a miner, who died of lung disease when Hoffa was only seven years old. Two years later, his mother moved the family to Detroit. Young Jimmy dropped out of school when he was 14 years old, and he began working full-time at manual jobs to support his family. He eventually found work with a grocery store chain in Detroit. And like most jobs back then, the pay was low and working conditions were dangerous he decided to join a union. And he worked to organize that whole grocery chain for the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Partly because of this, he was fired from his job in 1932. But his organizing activities caught the eye of the leaders of the Teamsters Union, and they were impressed with his ability, so they hired him to become an organizer during the 1930s and 40s the teamsters grew to become the largest union in the united states by 1950 they had over one million members representing drivers and other workers in the transportation industry and jimmy hoffa developed the strategy that drove most of this growth in 1946 he became the president of Local 299 in Detroit. This was despite the fact that not once had he ever worked as a truck driver. But he combined his local with other locals around the Detroit area and eventually became the head of all Michigan Teamsters. In 1952, in Los Angeles, he was elected vice president of the National Union. As the union expanded, Organized crime gained a foothold through deals to control the pension fund and payoffs from local officials. Hoffa was forced to deal with them as he assumed the presidency in 1957, after the previous president, Dave Beck, was indicted for fraud. But Hoffa had his own legal troubles. He was investigated by a Senate subcommittee in 1957. The attorney for the subcommittee was an aggressive young lawyer from Massachusetts named Robert Kennedy. He and Hoffa had several run-ins. At times, they threatened to beat each other up on national television. At one point during questioning, Hoffa asserted his Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination over and over and over. Finally, Bobby Kennedy said, You know, Mr. Hoffa, You remind me of a little girl hiding behind your mother's skirts. Hoffa challenged him to go outside the Capitol and fight. Kennedy had to be restrained from following him outside and doing just that. He was indicted for trying to bribe a senator's aide, but was acquitted. But he had made an enemy for life. And in 1960, this skinny young lawyer whom Hoffa threatened to kill several times, had a brother who was elected president of the United States. And Jack Kennedy appointed his little brother to be attorney general. And as he investigated organized crime, Bobby Kennedy tied Hoffa to several mafia figures. And in fact, he established a Get Hoffa squad in the Justice Department. And in 1963, Bobby Kennedy got his man. Hoffa was convicted of attempted bribery of a grand jury uh, member, of conspiracy, and three counts of mail and wire fraud related to the Teamsters' pension fund. He was sentenced to 13 years. He finally went to prison in late 1967 and his vice president, Frank Fitzsimmons, took over the union. The original plan was that Fitzsimmons would just be a figurehead, following Hoffa's orders. Hoffa would continue to be in charge and run things from his prison cell. Fitzsimmons went along for a bit, but eventually got tired of taking orders and took control of the union himself. In 1971, there was a new president, Richard Nixon, and the Teamsters, who had normally supported Democrats in all the local elections and national elections, decided to support Richard Nixon. Nixon commuted Hoffa's sentence to time served, and he was released from prison on the condition that he not engage in direct or indirect management of a union until his original sentence would have been up in 1980. As soon as he was released from prison, Hoffa claimed that he was not bound by Nixon's condition about refraining from Union activities. And by 1973, he had laid plans to seize control of the Union and its presidency once again. But not everyone was happy with the prospect of Hoffa coming back into leadership. Frank Fitzsimmons and the current leadership liked being in charge. In addition, they had built their own alliances in locals around the country. And the mafia had cut deals with the present leadership regarding the pension fund, which they used as their personal money laundering operation. The gangsters had a sweet deal with Frank Fitzsimmons and union leadership, and they certainly weren't overjoyed with having to deal with Hoffa again. As he attempted to take control of the Union, he reached out to an associate named Tony Previzano, a Union leader that he had met in Detroit. And Previzano was also a captain in the New York City Genovese crime family. He warned Hoffa, stay away from the Union, or I'll pull out your guts and kidnap your grandchildren. Hoffa and Prevazano were at war. Two members of the Detroit mob, Anthony Giaclone and his brother Vito, tried to mediate between Hoffa and Prevesano. On July 30th, 1975, they set up a meeting with Hoffa at the Macus Red Fox Restaurant in suburban Detroit. This was the place where Hoffa's son had had his rehearsal dinner a few years before. The meeting was set. For 2 p.m. between 2:15 and 2:30, Hoffa called his wife from a payphone at a hardware store across the street. He was complaining that Giaclone hadn't shown up yet. He'd been stood up, and he assured his wife that he'd be home by four o'clock to grill some steaks for dinner. Sometime between 2:45 and 2:50, Hoffa was seen getting in a car with three other people. And that was the last time anyone saw James Riddle Hoffa. At 7 a.m. the next morning, his wife called her children and said that their dad had never come home that night before. As soon as she told her daughter, her daughter got in the car and on the way to her mother's house, she had a vision. She saw her father slumped. He was dead and he was wearing a dark-colored, short-sleeved polo shirt. Strangely, that's exactly what he was wearing when he left the house the day before. They called his limo driver, who went to the restaurant and found his car. It was unlocked. There were no signs of a struggle, no sign of anything amiss. But there was no sign of Jimmy Hoffa. At 6 p.m., his son, James Jr., filed a missing persons report. The Michigan State Police and the FBI began an investigation. The Hoffa family offered a reward of $200,000 for any information leading to the disappearance of their husband and father. That reward has never been claimed. The police talked to the witness who saw Hoffa get into a car. They got a description of the car, and they traced it to Tony Giaclone's brother, Joe Giaclone. Joe said that he had loaned the car to Hoffa's foster son, Chucky O'Brien, so O'Brien could deliver some fish. Police found the car, sent some police dogs, and they picked up Hoffa's scent in the car, but no other evidence, no blood, No sign of a struggle. The feds immediately suspected that the mafia was involved in Hoffa's disappearance, so they applied for and received search warrants to tap certain mobsters' phones. But they discovered that the mobsters were very reluctant to even mention Hoffa, even in private. A federal investigator later told a judge in Detroit that an informant had named three New Jersey men close associates, of provisano as the hit squad, Tommy Ardetta, and two brothers, Sal and Gabe Bergulio. But no evidence has ever been found to tie the men to the disappearance. Hoffa's wife, Josephine, died in 1980 and is buried in a local cemetery in Detroit. His family went to court, and Hoffa was declared legally dead, on July 30th, 1982, seven years after he disappeared. In 1976, the FBI prepared a 56-page report called the Hoffax Menu. That memo states that the FBI believes that Hoffa was killed on the orders of certain mafia members to prevent him from regaining power and interfering with their control of the pension fund. They don't identify any suspects, but the memo does state that they don't believe Provazano had the power in the mob to actually order the hit, but that he complained to someone up the chain who did have that power, and probably someone from the New Jersey or New York mob actually ordered the hit. So where is Jimmy Hoffa's body, if in fact he was dead? A con who served time with Hoffa, and later became part of the Witness Protection Program, told a Senate subcommittee in 1982 that Hoffa's body was ground up, shipped to Florida, and thrown into a swamp. The FBI found no credible evidence and determined that Allen was probably just trying to get some publicity and some money. The most famous theory that still makes the rounds was put forth by a self-described hitman named Donald... Tony the Greek, Franco's, He said that the mob had him buried under Section 107 of Giant Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey, when it was being built. The FBI investigated but didn't find any credible evidence to support this. Franco's was nowhere near Detroit or New Jersey when this happened. In fact, he was in jail. When Giant Stadium was finally demolished in 2010, the FBI didn't even bother to show up to check for Hoffa's body. Hoffa's local enforcer, or muscle, Joseph Franco, wrote a book that it was the feds who killed Hoffa. He said they abducted him from the parking lot, took him to an airport, put him on a plane, flew over the Great Lakes, and pushed him out the door. Again, no evidence to support this claim. In the 2019 movie, The Irishman, the killer is portrayed as Hoffa's former friend and later enemy, Frank Shearer. He said that he shot Hoffa at his house in Detroit. In 2004, the cops investigated this and in fact ripped up the floorboards. They found some blood, but it didn't match Hoffa's. Or did a New Jersey hitman named Richard the Iceman Kuklinski kill Hoffa? In a book that he wrote, he claimed that in fact he did. That he killed him, put him in a car, and drove the body to New Jersey. He said that he sealed it in a 50-gallon drum and then set it on fire and buried it. And then, he said, he came back later, dug up the drum and put it in a trunk of a car that was being sold as scrap. The Iceman said that the mob paid him $40,000 for the hit. The FBI investigated this, and they don't find it credible either. They believe that the Iceman simply made this up to sell books. Another former mafia guy, Tony Zarelli, told his lawyer that Hoffa was buried beneath a concrete slab in a barn in suburban Detroit. The feds brought down a backhoe and dug up the slab. Nothing. Richard Powell, another convicted killer, said that Hoffa was buried underneath an above-ground swimming pool in suburban Detroit. Again, the feds went to the pool, brought in some heavy equipment, demolished the pool, and dug up the slab beneath it. They found bupkis. In a 2011 book, Marvin Eklund, who describes himself as a chauffeur and goon for mob bosses, claims that Hoffa is buried beneath the Renaissance Center, the headquarters of General Motors in downtown Detroit. Needless to say, the feds have not destroyed the Renaissance Center and dug it up. They don't don't find Eklund credible either. But then, just last year in 2020 a former New York Times journalist named Don Meleda went to the FBI. He's written extensively about Hoffa and his disappearance. And in his investigation, he found a man named Frank Coppola, whose father worked at a landfill in Jersey City, owned by a gangster named Phil Mikado. He claims that in 2008, his father was dying of respiratory disease. Shortly before his death, he called his son to his bedside and told his son the tale. He said that in 1975, some men in a limo told him that very shortly a truck would pull up and that Hoffa's body would be inside. Mikado was one of those men, and he told Coppolo that it was going to be his job to bury the body. And in fact, he pointed out exactly where he wanted the body buried in the northwest corner of the landfill. Coppola was worried that someone might have seen Moscato at the dump. They might have seen him pointing. So after Moscato and his cronies left, Coppola got a backhoe and dug a huge trench, not where Moscato told him to, but several hundred yards away. He got a 55-gallon drum, Due to the fact that I guess rigor mortis had already set in and Hoffa's body was stiff, they couldn't put him in head down. So they put him in the trunk, feet first, or not the trunk, the drum, and they sealed it. And then he buried him. The landfill was a Superfund site and eventually was cleaned up and now is, is a park just underneath an expressway in New Jersey. When Mileta went to the FBI and told them this, they brought in subsurface radar equipment. And according to a worker at the dump, which is now owned by another waste management company, the FBI found using underground radar what looked to be several barrels. They immediately ordered the landfill company to dig up the barrels. They took custody of them and drove away. That was in October of 2020. No response yet from the FBI about what they did or didn't find. So maybe, just maybe, soon we may know what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. Or not.
1: Now, Dad, I'm confused because I thought Jim Carrey reported on the body of Jimmy Hoffa being found in Bruce Almighty. So,
0: I'm going to have to watch that movie again. You don't remember? I'm, no, I don't. Oh, my gosh. I'm sure if Jim Carrey said it, though, it's got to be true. So, I mean, maybe this whole <laughs> podcast could have been a lot shorter. We could right. have just quoted the movie.
1: Well, in the movie, you know, when he's God, he he needs an interesting news story because Steve Carell is getting all the good stories. I see. So he manifests that Jimmy Hoffa's body be there and the dogs find it and they dig up the body. So Ah,
0: Anyway. Where, where did they find it
1: at a park oh. but it was in new york i think isn't that movie in like new york or something i don't know yeah it was I'm, obviously a I'm, joke.
0: yes i'm I, i'm ashamed <laughs> to admit that you know bruce almighty winning so many academy awards that i've not actually it's been so long since i've seen the movie i i'll have to well, watch it again
1: i watched it so many times yes. that i remember it very well anyway Well, this was interesting because literally the only thing I knew about Jimmy Hoffa was Bruce Almighty until, you know, Mm -hmm. I researched for this. So this was fun. And our notes today will be mostly about the theories of what happened. But before that, we have the trends of the crime section. And this is part of the part of our show where I tell you all about the fashion that was either in vogue at the time of the crime or has to do with you know, an aspect of the crime in some way. So I thought I would talk about the connection between labor unions and fashion or the garment industry. Good idea. Thank you. Thought of it myself. In the mid to late 1800s, clothing manufacturers began purchasing sewing machines to produce ready-to-wear fashion. Garment manufacturing exploded in the U.S., and by the end of the 19th century, the garment industry was the third largest in the country. Poor working conditions and garment factories began to be exposed in the mid-19th century and unions developed. This is a quote from the article A Stitch in Time, Sewing and the Evolution of Labor from the Dutch label shop. An 1872 Boston investigation reported that there was little or no ventilation in garment sweatshops. Many windows and doors were locked and many workers did not have access to toilets or drinking water. Yet no significant changes occurred as unions began to strengthen, end quote. The International Ladies Garment Workers Union was developed in 1900. It played a key role in labor rights movements. And perhaps the biggest piece of history that has to do with the garment industry and uh, the, the Garment Workers Union was the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in 1911. I know you've heard of this, I'm sure. Yeah, sure. On March, this is a, another quote from the article. On March 25th, 1911, a dropped cigarette caused the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory to go up in flames. Although the blaze was quickly extinguished, it claimed 146 victims, the majority of them young women between the ages of 14 to 23. They were unable to escape the factory because several exit doors were locked from the outside to prevent unauthorized breaks. There was only one fire escape and one of the two elevators ceased running. In 1938, the Fair Labor Standards Act imposed a minimum wage and required overtime pay for more than 40 hours of work per week. Partially as a result of this law, garment manufacturing was moved offshore to East Europe and Asia, where there are fewer restrictions and regulations, which in turn just creates these problems in other countries. So it's really a mess.
0: And isn't that where the majority of clothes are now manufactured offshore Asia. Mm. Yeah.
1: And that's why thrifting is so encouraged now and uh, slow fashion, which is ethically sourced companies. And often it's the clothes that are more expensive uh, because they're more expensive to make and because they have fair working conditions and they pay their workers fairly. uh, But the clothing is more expensive, but it's, it's very difficult. I tried to ethically shop. It didn't last long because it's really hard living in the U.S. as a middle class person. I mean, you want cute clothes and you want them for cheap, so it's it's really difficult.
0: Yeah, the the whole uh, labor movement really got started because of the um, the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union around the turn of the nineteenth to twentieth century, and um, for the first really twenty five to thirty years of of that century. Um, There were a number of riots. There was a lot of unrest. Uh, The owners of businesses believed that labor was, that the labor unions were actually fronts for communism, which was spreading in Europe in in the first part of that century. Um, One of the first unions that tried to pull together all the unions in this country was called the International Workers of the World, uh, IWW. And they called them Wobblies. And there, there was evidence that some of these people were communists or socialists. And uh, management and owners of businesses used that to really suppress the unions. Uh, there were you know, uh, many times there were strikes and the police would uh, would come in guns blazing and, and kill workers to break the strikes. It really wasn't until uh, after the Great Depression and, and the New Deal. That uh, that labor unions began to be recognized and became a powerful political force in this country. So it was just a um, for about twenty or thirty years. That was a huge. Uh, there was a lot of social unrest in this country. I'm I'm looking behind you. There's a book behind you called The Bully Pulpit by Doris Kearns Goodwin, and. Um, that gives a, a pretty interesting history of of labor unions and uh, politics. Theodore Roosevelt um, was someone who uh, who helped legitimize unions, and a lot of magazine articles and, and famous magazines and and uh, writers pointed out some of the terrible working conditions in factories that finally mm-hmm. led to um, to unions being legitimized in the country so it was a it's a big part of our history
1: mm-hmm. and uh, um, who is that is that that's not theodore roosevelt no that's, that's theodore, theodore roosevelt.
0: roosevelt on top i believe that's william howard taft who is oh, his yeah. successor
1: okay yeah definitely um i guess i didn't realize that the whole labor movement really started with the garment industry and mm-hmm. as someone who you know studied fashion in college we did spend a lot of time learning about the the garment industry in the 19th century and and how it's continuing now but overseas and it's really pretty scary and messed up not only just the working conditions but also the pollution that comes from it and mm-hmm. the harm it's doing to yeah. the earth so right
0: and child labor is still a big mm-hmm. deal um you know part of the labor reform in this country was imposing um, minimum hours of work for children and that was just fought and fought and fought for years wow. um Again, business owners said, you have no right to tell us who we can and can't hire. We've got the freedom to enter into contracts. And again, it wasn't until uh, Roosevelt became president and uh, that the Supreme Court finally said that those laws were constitutional.
1: Hmm. Tell us about this cocktail this week, Dad. Well, Godfather,
0: I, I think everybody who's looked into this, uh, with maybe the one exception of the guy who said the feds threw him out of an airplane, realizes <laughs> that you know the mafia was, was somehow involved in this. So I um, got thinking, what are, what's a good mafia-themed cocktail? And the uh, first one I found was called The Godfather. And evidently, this was Marlon Brando's favorite cocktail. And Brando, of course, played Don Corleone, the godfather, in the movie. The Godfather. And uh, this is a very simple cocktail. It takes my favorite base spirit, which is...
1: Scotch. Scotch. Yes. I almost said bourbon, but...
0: No, Scotch. And um, combines that with amaretto, which mm. is an almond-flavored liqueur. It's about a one-to-three ratio. So, uh, say, um, you know, one ounce of Scotch and one-third ounce of, of amaretto over ice so you've got that that great peaty flavor and and soft buttery flavor of Scotch, with the the sweetness of the almond liqueur. So um, that's that's uh, that's the cocktail today. Mm. The Godfather.
1: Simple. I'll make,
0: make you an offer. You can refuse. Someday, maybe you can do a favor for me.
1: You sound just like him. I've never seen that movie, but I've heard enough oh, people quote it. Classic, classic yeah. movie. I should watch it. I also want to watch The Sopranos now that I'm old enough.
0: Oh, yes. Classic show.
1: Mm-hmm. I want to see the finale that you were so enamored with. Yes. But we won't spoil that here. So. uh, So I had a section on the Teamsters Union, but it looks like I forgot to go back and like Finish that. Okay. I only have two points in it. Mm-hmm. So if you have anything to add after I say what I found, that'd be great. But okay. if not, we'll move on. <laughs> okay. All I had, uh it was a labor union for like truck drivers. Mm-hmm. And when Hoffa was president, 90% of US transportation was controlled by the Teamsters. Mm-hmm. It's pretty interesting, I thought.
0: Yeah. um Yeah. So do uh, you know where the name Teamsters came from? I do not. Well, uh, before before automobiles were were the major form of transportation, uh, freight was delivered in wagons with teams of horses pulling the wagons, and so wagon drivers were called teamsters. teamsters. And so that's the uh, that's the origin of the name. And uh, the teamsters not only um, not only uh, represent drivers; they represent you know really anyone. Uh, involved in the transportation industry, like dock workers, you know, hmm. people who load uh, and unload uh, freight. They represent uh, airline pilots, bus drivers. So they they've expanded from just truck drivers to really anyone mm-hmm. in in the um, in the transportation industry. And they were the largest union in the in the country. And by the by the 1940s. Um, A lot of the unions around the country representing all sorts of different workers came together under an umbrella organization called the American Federation of Labor or, uh, the CIO. And I, Oh, I just, I've lost Congress of industrial something, uh, the AFL CIO. And, um, of course they wanted the Teamsters to, to become part of that since they were the largest union, but, uh, the Teamsters by that time had developed quite a reputation of uh, having ties to organized crime and being very uh, uh, loose with their their workers' uh, funds, their pension fund and things like that. And um, they wanted the Teamsters to reform. And Jimmy Hoffa said, no, oh, I'll think about it, <laughs> um, but didn't do anything. And so... Finally, the AFL-CIO kicked the Teamsters out. So they are still the one major union that's not part of um, hmm. the large umbrella organization of, of unions in this country.
1: Uh, I'm thinking of a part of the office where the warehouse workers start. Mm-hmm. They talk about they want to unionize, mm-hmm. but then the boss is like, if you unionize, you'll get fired or something. Why mm-hmm. do corporations not like is it because the unions demand better conditions or well,
0: better conditions, better pay. Um and um, you know, they they negotiate contracts. So now now here's something you may not know about
1: me. Well, hold on. Sorry. Is a corporation allowed to say you'll get fired if you unionize?
0: No, that's against the law. Okay. That's against the law. That, that's against the law that say. you mentioned a while ago. So there there are, you know, very – it's a set process on what corporations can't do. If someone wants to unionize, they they certainly have the right to do it. You can't be fired for engaging in, in union activity. But any time a business wants to unionize, um, the business really fights it. So they Mm. call the, they have the right to call their employees together and say, I know they, I know you're being approached about unionizing. Here's why you shouldn't do it. You know, we're, if you unionize, you know, if, 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 uh, company, if the union wants you to go on strike, you're going to have to go on strike. You're going to lose money, um. you know, we're prepared to offer you salaries better than the union can give you. And, you know, we're really looking out for your welfare. So it, it becomes a political thing between the union saying you can't trust these people and and the worker and companies saying you know, if you unionize, we may have to shut down. If they negotiate a huge contract and we can't and we can't afford it, you know, we'll go overseas or we'll shut down. So if you That's want to protect right, right. your job. Don't join the union, whereas a union says if you want to keep that job, you better join the union. So it's a it's a huge. Uh,
1: and that's what she was saying in the show. I just misinterpreted yeah. it. Mm-hmm. What do I not know about you?
0: I am a teamster.
1: <gasps> what?
0: I'm a I member. I am a member of the teamsters <sighs> union.
1: Whoa. You
0: know, as you know, when I retired from the law practice, I began working for a school bus transportation company uh-huh. and I. Uh, So I am a dues-paying teamster right now.
1: So cool. You should get a tattoo.
0: Well, you know, I was hoping that (laughs) when I joined the union, you know, they'd give me a secret handshake Uh and also tell me where Jimmy Hoffa is buried. But uh,
1: that would have been really great for this episode.
0: They didn't. it, It didn't happen. So, you know, I am a proud teamster right now.
1: Are you a proud mafia member? Probably can't divulge yeah, that information. Yeah, we,
0: really <laughs> we can't really talk about things like that,
1: right? Right, now. right. For for our own safety, I see.
0: But, you know, I might be willing to make you an offer you can't refuse.
1: <laughs> I do a favor for you. You do a favor for me. How about that? Let's get into these theories. I think, so I I oftentimes, for, for our unsolved cases, I find mm. a lot of my information from BuzzFeed Unsolved youtube Mm -hmm. videos yes so and you you two often say the same things but it's usually in like there's some differences Mm -hmm. so we'll still go over what i have and i it's also quite possible i wrote things down wrong because i'm typing and anyway theory one killed by roland mcmaster and salvatore briguglio briguglio Mm -hmm. how do you say that
0: I would call it uh, Berguglio.
1: Berguglio. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. So this was at a horse farm. Was this the one you were talking about with the farm? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. They put the body in a trunk and then sent it to a mafia-controlled landfill in New Jersey in a getaway transportation truck. The trucking company's president was a Teamster Pension Fund trustee. Sketchy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the last one that I mentioned. In fact, yes, that's, okay. the, that's the one that just came to light in twenty twenty. Okay, that um, that uh, his um, Hoffa's initial fight was with what? What was his name? Provolone. Yeah,
1: his nickname is Tony Pro. Tony. So Pro. that's how I'll refer to him.
0: The the Tony Pro is kind of a mid level mafia guy, and, uh-huh. and the FBI doesn't think he had the power to actually order a hit, but. To, he went to Bergoglio, and Bergoglio said, yeah, you know, things are pretty sweet right now. We don't need Hoffa coming back. Let's get rid of him.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't know that was the one that came to light so recently. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's the one I believe the most. But when we get to the other one, I believe the most. I'll okay. say it. And right. then at the end, you can say what you believe. okay. All right. Number two, Tony Pro ordered the hit on Hoffa because of conflict that occurred while they were imprisoned together in Pennsylvania. Tony Pro was thought to have been influencing Hoffa's successor in the Teamsters, Frank Fitzsimmons. Tony Pro threatened to kidnap Hoffa's loved ones or pull his guts out if he tried to become president again. Yes. What do you think that means? Pull your pull guts, your guts out? out? Like your intestines? Yeah, you
0: know, stick a knife in there
1: and yank. <laughs> <Gross>. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to think about that. Anything to add with that one? I know you mentioned that one.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, here's here's my thing. Um, why ship his body halfway across the country to mm-hmm. New Jersey? I mean, you know, you've killed the guy. He's, you got him in a truck. What happens if the truck gets in a wreck? What happens if the truck breaks down? What happens if they're speeding and the cop pulls them over and smells a dead body? Mm-hmm. I uh, that that's the whole thing about Hoffa being buried on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Mafia knows how to dispose of a body. I'm pretty sure. Why? Why risk getting caught by mm-hmm. by shipping him back? That's my that's my problem with all the all the things that say he's buried somewhere in Jersey or New York.
1: Yeah, I didn't get that either. Why why move the body? And yeah. a lot of these talk about him being in New Jersey.
0: So. Yeah. Um, the in in this theory, the idea is that the person who owned that um, that landfill. Um, was a was a made guy was connected and that that's just where he disposed of his bodies mm-hmm. they called it uh i can't remember the guy's name now but they called it uh whatever his name was uncle something's dump okay and that you know that was just a common place to dispose of bodies put them in a barrel buried underground and so the the idea is well you know hey we got a place to dispose of nobody will ever find it mm-hmm. and that's why they did it okay but again, I just, it doesn't make sense. If you're, yeah. you're going to kill somebody in Jersey, bury them in Jersey. Why ship them across the country?
1: Mm-hmm. Number three. This was the Iceman one. Hoffa mm-hmm. was killed by hitman and serial killer Richard Kuklinski, the Iceman. Mm-hmm. And I won't retell what you said, but uh, something there was something you didn't say. Oh, someone. There's a police officer named Patrick Kane who believes that Kuklinski is telling the truth, but others dismissed this saying he's a liar and an exaggerator. And Robert Garrett, prime expert and former FBI agent, has called this claim, quote, the most embarrassing one to date, end quote. Yeah. So they don't like this one.
0: And again, why ship him to New Jersey? Why bury him and then dig him up and then put him in a car? Right. It just, again, doesn't make sense. Now, what I do like about this theory if, if you can say i like it um the uh the people that they named as the actual mm-hmm. ones who carried uh, who carried out the hit um Tell- or that, that drove him back was tony pro gay bergulio and sal Gr- bergulio and thomas andretta they were very early named mm-hmm. by an informant as the people who actually carried out the hit and witnesses did see Hoffa get into his car with three men.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: maybe there's a grain of truth here that, that he actually, you know, did name these three guys. They said drove him to or drove the body to Jersey. Um, they may have been the ones who actually carried out the hit. But okay. you know, the FBI thinks, well, yeah, they got him in the car. They lured him in the car. Mm-hmm. Um and they just drove him about a mile away from the restaurant and put a couple bullets in his head. Right. And disposed of the body there.
1: hmm Something else funny that they said on the video about this one was uh, Kuklinski is saying that the car was crushed and sold for scrap metal and Hoffie, Hoffie, Hoffa is somewhere in Japan. <laughs> i forgot it. i didn't write that part down but that was part of it yeah. like the medal was sold to someone in japan or something yeah. and yeah this, like, doesn't the doesn't in japan.
0: this doesn't make sense this doesn't make sense and and um the ice man had a motive here i mean he'd written a book and if if he can get reviews that said hey we know what happened to hoffa he's gonna sell more books than right. this, you know hits that no one knew about so mm-hmm. I, I don't i don't give any credence to this one either
1: no Number four, mob member Frank Sheeran, the Irishman, called Hoffa on orders from Russell Buffalino. That's how you say it. Uh, And Russell Buffalino was like a top guy. Mm -hmm. Hoffa used Sheeran to kill people to get rid of his rivals and secure his leadership in Teamsters. Uh, Sheeran picked Hoffa up from a restaurant, drove him to an empty home and shot him in the back of the head as he walked inside. Sheeran left and Hoffa's body was sent to a funeral home controlled by the mob where he was cremated. Sheeran felt very guilty for betraying Hoffa, but did so because he would also be killed if he refused. He said that he purposefully sat in the front passenger seat of the car to send a secret warning to Hoffa. Hoffa always sat in the front passenger seat, so Sheeran hoped that Hoffa would notice that there was something weird about the gathering. Hoffa's son believed his father would have entered the car with Sheeran inside, and he wouldn't have done that if it had been other suspects. It's possible Sheeran is telling the truth, but there is no blood evidence to prove it. This is the one I like.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I don't know if if Sheeran was involved, but I think this is what happened to the body, and that's what the FBI thinks happened to the body. Mm -hmm. They got him away from the restaurant somewhere, either in a house or the woods somewhere, but they killed him. And uh either took him to this funeral home, or there were industrial incinerators all around the area that they just took him there um, and and burned the body and then took the ashes and threw him in the lake or in the woods somewhere. no I, body,
1: I, I, no crime
0: it's yeah. I think that's what happened
1: mm-hmm.
0: whether it was Sharon or, or someone else, I think clearly that's what happened
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh this thing was probably over within an hour
1: yep and uh. I thought the part about the secret message was interesting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, not that I would ever pick up on a message like that, but I don't know. I thought that was interesting.
0: But but Hoffa's Hoffa's son, who by the way, do you know what he does for a living now? I don't. He is the president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, oh. and he is hopefully been
1: the- he's not sketchy.
0: No, he is very sketchy. Oh, good. <laughs> he's, he's he's constantly under investigation oh, himself. Oh, good. But he went to law school. He went to the University of Michigan and became a lawyer, but he is 80 years old and has been the president of the union for 15 or 20 years. So he's picking up right where his father left off. But Great. Uh, I. But think he's he,
1: made it this far? Yes,
0: and he knows not to get in a car with three men.
1: Right. <laughs>
0: good. <laughs> but yeah, they. Uh, his son agrees that— Hoffa probably. Hoffa knew he was he was marked, yeah. and he would not have gotten a car with three strangers. And so, whether it was Sheeran or whether it was this that uh,
1: Chucky guy, that
0: Chucky guy, mm-hmm. you know, someone that Hoffa knew and at least had some trust in was mm-hmm. probably there to lure him uh, into the car.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So yeah, the, at least the the outline of of this one is what I agree with too. Whether or not. Mm-hmm. Sheeran was involved or you know the other three guys right jersey
1: now he is not to be confused with our with our favorite ed sheeran okay no don't want anyone to think i'm accusing ed sheeran because i love him Mm -hmm. number five this one's weird i don't totally get it but i'll read it anyway was there a collusion between nixon and the mob i mean i wouldn't put it past him he was pretty (laughs) shady too Nixon wanted to be on the good side of the working class and and the mob wants Hoffa out so they can be on the good side of the union. They don't want Hoffa to seize power in the union so they get Nixon to put the ban on Hoffa. Nearly $1 million from the mob was sent to Nixon for the restricted Hoffa pardon. This money could have been used to cover up Watergate, but the mob payments were never confirmed. There's evidence that Hoffa was suspicious of this and could have been preparing to go public with the information that the mob paid off Nixon, and so that would be the main mm. motive.
0: Yeah, I mean I've heard that too—that there was some collusion between Nixon and and the mob, uh, and that's n- nothing to be no surprise there. I mean, mm. a lot of our politicians had mob connections. Mm. Democrats and Republicans. I mean, mm-hmm. John Kennedy was pretty high connected with with mob figures in Chicago, but uh, yeah, the the thing about the Teamsters, they're one of the few unions back in the '60s who actually endorsed Richard Nixon. Most unions have traditionally been um, have uh, they shown more favor to the Democratic Party, the working class party. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, the Teamsters, uh, the Teamsters did. Did endorse Richard Nixon, and uh, they thought that you know, well, let's get let's let's get Hoffa out of jail so he doesn't talk, but we'll get Nixon to make a condition of his commutation uh, that you don't get you you can't uh, you can't be involved in, in union leadership till 1980. Of course, Hoffa immediately thumbed his nose at that. He mm-hmm. said, "You yeah, you you commuted my sentence. You can't do that with conditions." He took it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court did affirm Nixon's right to do that. But the question is, what would have happened if if Hoffa had lived and gone back in the union? I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know if Nixon could take back the pardon and send him back to prison. It seemed a little far-fetched to me. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the other thing about Hoffa is once he got out of prison, uh, he was given his full union pension mm. of $1.75 million. So.
1: Which is how much? What year did he get out?
0: 71. That's when he was released.
1: How much was it again?
0: 1.75 million.
1: 1971. Woo! $11,951,376.54 $11,951,376.54 today.
0: So a lot of people think there was some negotiation around all of these things that, you know, Nixon will pardon you. You'll get your $1.75 million, You just can't be in union leadership anymore. And Hoffa agreed to it. But then as soon as he got out, he thumbed his nose at everything. And again, that, that just served to piss off the mob and piss off the Teamsters. Um, So I I don't think a lot of people missed Jimmy Hoffa, except his family Mm -hmm. when it was all said and done. He was trouble for the Republican Party. He was trouble for Nixon. He was trouble for the union. And he was trouble for the mob.
1: Mm -hmm. What if he didn't get killed, though?
0: You mean he could be living on that same island island? with with John Kennedy? and
1: Marilyn, Elvis, they're all on the island.
0: Yep. Or maybe... Maybe he's down in Argentina with Hitler.
1: And with the go-go dancer that he he ran off with.
0: Well, I suppose that's possible. I mean, he would be 108 years old right now, but, you know.
1: I didn't say why he'd be still alive. I said, what if he didn't get killed? I was careful because I was like, he's probably way too old. Yes.
0: (laughs) Well, he doesn't seem to me the kind of guy who would just go quietly into the night.
1: Yeah, clearly. So...
0: No, I I, I think I think Jimmy Hoffa is uh, scattered into a million molecules of ash, probably at the bottom of one of the Great Lakes or just in some wooded area around Detroit.
1: Did you know who he was like? Did you know because in the video they were talking about how he was seen by a lot of people or he was uh, a lot of people had witnessed him being at that restaurant because he was recognizable. So. Mm -hmm. Would you have been able to recognize him in the seventies, do you think?
0: I think so, yeah. I mean was he
1: like in the newspapers oh, or all how? the time. Okay.
0: I mean, from from the time he was assumed control of the union, and Bobby Kennedy was out to get him. I mean, he was constantly at war with the Kennedys. So uh yeah, he was he was on the news a lot, he was in the papers a lot, you know, constantly being indicted for crime. So yeah, he was a recognizable figure.
1: It's weird because now,
0: and particularly in Detroit, I mean, yeah, his hometown.
1: right. It's that's weird to think about for me because now anybody can be famous with social media. So there are so many famous people that I have no idea who they are, and there's people I think are famous, but like uh, other people, even my age would have absolutely no mm-hmm. idea who they are. So kind of funny that in the seventies, like, you had to really be famous,
0: and he was. He was yeah. on the cover of Time magazine, Newsweek constantly in the paper on the evening news uh hmm. and he had this he had this tough guy voice too mm-hmm.
1: um, I want to look up what he, he sounded a, he like he was a scary guy Ugh, he looked scary in pictures I'll finish off with a few items in the media I found about Jimmy Hoffa I know you'd like this 1992 film Hoffa starred Jack
0: Jack Nicholson. as
1: Jimmy Hoffa bet that's good
0: let's go outside (laughs) kennedy we'll get it on right here
1: (laughs) i'd like to see that movie bruce almighty of course i mentioned at the beginning uh that's that's a light one but i love that movie so and then we have i didn't know that this is what this movie was about 2019 the irishman on netflix uh it was about the irishman of Mm -hmm. course and jimmy hoffa was portrayed by al pacino yeah Mm -hmm. so i bet that was good yeah i didn't watch it because isn't it like four hours long Mm -hmm. yeah so i didn't watch it that's that's a little too much for me i did just see al pacino in the new lady gaga movie though it's really good Mm -hmm. about gucci there you go uh father son house of gucci (laughs) that's my favorite part (laughs) thank you all for listening this was really fun uh i know we took a long break there's a lot of stuff happening. You know, we had Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up. So I'm sure we won't record around. We're going out of town for Christmas. So might take a little break there too. But you're well, welcome. Who, We're back.
0: Well, who's next?
1: Next week. Ooh, I'm excited. Yes. Tupac. Okay. That'll be good. I don't know much about that one, but I know who Tupac was. Okay. We will see you all next week. And hopefully tonight yes. we get a big win. That's right. Or the Chiefs. The
0: Denver Broncos are coming to town.
1: They're going down. Yep. We do
0: you hate Denver?
1: Mhm. Go, Go Chiefs! Chiefs. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norlin and Macy Norlin Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at PretendMachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquin for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art.